As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature, including descriptions of physical and sexual violence against adults, children, and animals. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, I'm Talia. And I'm Tanya. And together we are Crimes and Consequences, a true crime podcast. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Talia. Welcome back, everybody, to another exciting episode of Crimes and Consequences. Today, I have a story that I'm going to just go out on a limb and say nobody's ever heard before. Ooh, good. I got my information from the court records, and I only found one article on Google about this case. I really thought it needed to be heard. There must be some crazy shit happening. There's some crazy shit. I never once thought that... The famous songwriter and singer Billy Joel would ever be accused of murder. What? (laughs) Well, let me explain. Please do. But before I start, I want to ask everybody to hit the subscribe or follow button, whatever on your app, and let's do it. Let's do it. I guess I should acknowledge that I have a cold. Yes, you're a little nasally. But the world doesn't stop when someone gets a cold, and neither am I. You ready? Yep. In the summer of 1981, 35-year-old Marie Moore managed this chaotic household that was always filled with her 12-year-old daughter Tammy's adolescent friends. They're coming and they're going. The former telephone operator rented a two-story home on Madison Avenue in Patterson, New Jersey. She lived there with her 50-year-old roommate Mary Gardulo. Okay, so Marie's a single mom. She's living in this low-income area. The house is next to a sports bar and a tool and die shop. She's splitting rent with her friend Mary. And not only does she have her 12-year-old daughter, Tammy, living with them, she is also responsible for the care and custody of one of her friend's daughters, 12-year-old Harriet. I'm not going to say her full name. In addition, 
Teresa Fury, Marie's goddaughter, she was a 12-year-old orphan. She lived in the neighborhood with her grandmother, and she was always over at what I'm going to call the Moore household. In the beginning of the summer, Tammy, not yet in seventh grade, began dating a 14-year-old boy named Ricky Flores. He became a constant figure in the Moore household, along with one of his friends, 13-year-old Lewis. So there's a lot of adolescent and teens at this house. And the summer of 1981 was fun-filled for all of them, thanks to Marie's doting. She frequently took the group to the Jersey Shore to hang out at the beach. They also went to amusement parks and bowled at the local bowling alley. All the children enjoyed spending time at the Moore household. And they ended up developing this great affection towards Marie as the summer days passed. Such was their affection for her that they started referring to her as Ma. But as the days grew shorter and the nights grew longer, things began to change at that Madison Avenue home. Although school started, Ricky, Teresa, and Lewis continued to visit the household on a daily basis. Now remember, Tammy lives there, and so does Harriet, under the care of Marie. On one occasion, while all five adolescents were just hanging out and chilling in the living room, Marie gathered them around, and she said she had to tell them a secret. Her ex-husband, Tammy's father, was in fact none other than the famous singer-songwriter Billy Joel. Stop it. I wish I could. This is his secret love child? Yes. And secret marriage? Yes. Okay. It's around the time he's dating Christy Brinkley or married to Christy Brinkley. It's a little before his uptown girl time. After telling them all this about Billy, she said Billy was planning on soon visiting the household. He wanted to establish some order there. He felt there was just too much chaos going on, and he wanted to personally straighten things out himself. Now, you wonder, how did he know what was going on there? Well, according to Marie, he had cameras and microphones hidden around the house. Of course he did. Billy didn't like what he was seeing and hearing, so he was going to come back to the house, he was going to fix it all up, and then he was going to help celebrate the new engagement of 12-year-old Tammy and 14-year-old Ricky. Come on. Because they had decided to marry. <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? It's fucking ridiculous. It's ridiculous because I just can't see Billy Joel sitting there monitoring them 24-7. Doesn't he have shit to do? <laughs> well, I'll explain. Okay. As you can imagine, the children were very confused and they didn't know what to think of all this. I mean, Billy Joel in 1981, he was a superstar. And also Tammy's father? Obviously, we know this isn't true. <laughs> In fact, Marie had never been married, and Tammy's father was unknown. But Tammy believed her mom and became convinced Billy Joel was her biological father. And in case the children had any doubts to Marie's veracity, those went away minutes later when the living room phone rang. Marie answered it and acknowledged to the children that it was Billy Joel on the line. Because he's watching them. And now he's calling them. Mm -hmm. During the course of this alleged conversation with Billy Joel, 
Marie relayed to the children what Billy was saying to her. He was very displeased with the mess and the lack of structure that he was seeing. And he insisted that all the children, not just Tammy and Harriet who lived there, but all the children be assigned daily chores and tasks. If they did not complete them properly, there would be dire consequences. Apparently, the famous singer had recently joined the New York Mafia. Oh, okay. And he was now mingling with some very dangerous men. And these men would bomb the Moore household or the children's family if they disobeyed any of Billy's instructions. Everyone except Tammy would be punished. Tammy was exempt from any punishment and any chores. Furthermore, Billy Joel designated 14-year-old Ricky to be the enforcer of his rules. <laughs> it's is ridiculous. I am trying to keep it together as I tell this story. Since Ricky planned on marrying Tammy and being the man of the house, he needed to prove himself to Billy. From then on, every day before and after school, Ricky, Teresa, and Lewis came to the Moore household and they did whatever tasks Billy instructed them to do. All the children and Marie's 50-year-old roommate, Mary, were convinced that Marie was, in fact, speaking with the piano man on the phone. <laughs> Tanya, stop it. It is it's just so fucking dumb. But they're young. I mean, they believed it. Right, it's I ridiculous can... to us, but they're like, whoa, shit. Right. Billy I mean, Joel I get, wants me to do this. I get why the kids were tricked. I mean, you don't expect your mom to make up some bullshit like this either. So she's respected by the kids. I can get that, but... It's fucking ridiculous. <sighs> so dumb. They didn't realize that Marie, having previously worked as a phone operator, used techniques she learned there while at the phone company to make her phone ring and appear as if it's just an ordinary outside call. Now, one day after school, while Ricky, Teresa, Harriet, and Lewis were busy doing their daily chores, the phone rang. Marie ostensibly spoke to Billy, who instructed the children to recite the list of rules they'd been given earlier that morning. If one of the children didn't do it correctly, Ricky was ordered to hit them with a bat. Oh my God. Thus began the cycle of punishments in the Moore household that would lead to the torture and death of a child one year later. Abuse disguised as harsh discipline was now a daily occurrence for Harriet, Teresa, and Lewis. And again, Teresa and Lewis didn't even live in that household. But they came there every day voluntarily out of fear of the consequences to their family and Marie if they didn't. Can you imagine your child coming to you and being like, look, I know I've been going over Tammy's house, but her mom's ex-husband is Billy Joel, and he gave us this list of chores, and if we didn't do it, we'd be punished. You'd be like, what? <laughs> no, I can't imagine. When the abuse first started, it was originally focused primarily on 12-year-old Harriet, Marie's goddaughter, whom I don't know much about. I just know she was left in Marie's care. And again, everything I'm going to tell you is really all there is to know. Harriet bore the brunt of the punishments, which eventually turned into torture. 
13-year-old Lewis's abuse was lessened somewhat because his family lived close by and his parents gave him a curfew, so he had to be home at a certain time. Towards the end of October, as the abuse began to escalate, Marie realized that Lewis's family might catch on to the household abuse. As they were actively involved parents, I mean, they paid attention to Lewis and his whereabouts. Marie let Lewis know that Billy Joel wanted him to leave the house permanently. But before he left, on the orders of Billy, Ricky punched Lewis in the nose as a reminder to keep his mouth shut. Around the same time, two important events occurred in the Moore household. First, Ricky ran away from home and began permanently living at Marie's house. And next, hang on tight, Tanya. (laughs) Billy Joel began to speak directly through the body of Marie instead of using the phone. What? Do you need me to repeat that? (laughs) Like a spirit, sort of? Billy Joel became embodied. Ah, okay. What the fuck, dude? These two occurrences were the key to upping the physical violence into sexual torture. And here's how it started. Ricky's parents discovered that he was no longer attending school. Someone posing as Ricky's mother had called the school on his behalf and reported that he had a really serious back injury and he wouldn't be going there anymore until further notice. Ricky's parents, the Floreses, they knew it was Marie, and they were furious. Ricky was immediately grounded and permanently prohibited from ever going back to the Moore household. His parents began escorting him to and from school, and on multiple occasions, his mom spotted Marie in her Ford Pinto following her and Ricky to and from school. My mom had a Pinto. It was green. (laughs) I know, they were always like green or diarrhea brown Mm -hmm. or something. Marie just couldn't let Ricky go. Not long after, Ricky snuck out of his house, hopped into Marie's Pinto, which was waiting around the corner, and was brought back to the Madison Avenue home. In 14-year-old Ricky's mind, He had to do this to protect his family from Billy Joel and his mafia henchmen. Almost immediately after bringing Ricky home, Marie left to do some errands. Upon her return, she shared a chilling tale to her roommate Mary, Harriet, goddaughter Teresa, her daughter Tammy, and Ricky. And this is a doozy. (laughs) I can't wait. While she was out, a group of men forced her pinto off the road. These men injected her with a serum, which would allow Billy Joel to enter into Marie's body and speak directly to others through her. The drug had started taking effect on Marie as she was telling the story to everyone. She implored the children to make her some coffee to help counter the effects because she could feel it taking over her body. As they all sat around the kitchen table, Marie covered her hands with her face. Then suddenly she removed them and in a cold voice said, quote, I'm no longer Marie. I'm Billy Joel. <laughs> <laughs> this is so fucking stupid. Oh my God. Uh, if 
If it didn't end so tragic, I know it would be fucking hilarious. But unfortunately, yeah, the abuse has only just started. It's okay to laugh because it's ridiculous. I just don't know how did she come up with this shit. It's amazing. And why Billy Joel? I know why Billy Joel. Wouldn't you pick some some other scary? I would have picked of- like some heavy metal yeah, dude or right. something, right? Ozzy Osbourne I was just or something. Say, I mean, he's no offense to Ozzy, bat, bats and stuff. Right. I mean, Ozzy's a lovely person, I'm sure, but Billy Joel is mild. Please don't send us hate mail if no. you're an Ozzy Osbourne fan, because <laughs> I am a fan too. As she continued to speak, her voice grew more masculine, and Billy Joel began speaking to the children directly for the first time. He was mean and demanding, and his words were riddled with profanity, which Marie never used around the children. One of Billy's first demands was that Ricky remain inside the residence for four weeks to watch over Marie, because the serum she was injected with was known to have some dangerous side effects, and she needed someone to keep an eye on her. The truth is, he was a runaway. And Marie didn't want him being seen by anybody. Soon, Billy Joel insisted that 12-year-old Tammy and Ricky call off their engagement and end their relationship for reasons unspecified. The real reason is 35-year-old Marie was becoming enamored with 8th grade Ricky. Shut the fuck up. And she was jealous of his relationship with her daughter. Wow. As time went by, Billy Joel, embodied by Marie, became very discontent with the way that Harriet and Teresa were completing their chores. The severity and frequency of their punishments increased. I mean, Billy Joel could never be made happy. Sounds like it. Although Ricky was appointed the role of the enforcer, he was also sometimes the object of Billy's dismay. Marie, pretending to have no choice in the matter, would hit Ricky sometimes with a baseball bat for failing to keep the children in line or for lying to Billy about the children's chores. In essence, Ricky would say they did a good job when Billy didn't believe they did. Marie frequently reminded the children that she didn't enjoy seeing them in pain. She didn't enjoy them being punished. But she was helpless to Billy. Mm -hmm. In fact, Billy ordered Ricky to beat Marie twice a day with either a bat, his fists, or a thick medical book. So she wasn't spared either. But oddly, when Ricky did beat Marie, she seemed to enjoy it. Oh, no. She would often tease him, saying she knew he could hit harder than that. Oh, my God. She's so sick. Oh, she's sick. After a few weeks, Ricky began missing his family, and he asked Billy if he could move back home. But Billy said no. Meanwhile, Ricky's mom was just beside herself. I mean, her 14-year-old son is missing. She knew he intentionally ran away, and she ended up filing an incorrigibility complaint with the juvenile authorities, charging Ricky with being a wayward child. Her gut instinct told her that Ricky was staying at the Moore household. Twice, 
the police and the Department of Youth and Family Services, DYFS, they went over to Marie's house to look for Ricky. But each time they were there, he hid in a crawl space. So he was never found. Now Harriet, the 12-year-old who had been left by her mom in Marie's care, she had made two failed attempts to escape the abuse. And finally, on a freezing November day, she took off towards her brother's house in nearby Lodi with no shoes and no jacket. She had managed to escape. While she's trying to get to her brother's house, she doesn't really know where to go. She doesn't know how to get there. She's 12. So she ends up asking a couple for directions. Seeing this obviously battered 12-year-old girl with no shoes, no coat, on a freezing November day, this couple decided to call the police. But when Harriet saw the police, she took off running. She was deathly afraid that she would end up being returned to Marie's home. The police caught up with the ragged girl and convinced her to tell them what happened. She shared the truth with them, but not the complete truth. After all, in her mind, Marie wasn't responsible for the abuse. It was Billy Joel. But if she mentioned Billy Joel's name, Marie might get in trouble. So she lied. And she said someone named Boss or Sir ordered another person to hold her hostage and abuse her. And she couldn't remember where she was held at and she couldn't give him directions. The police took Harriet to the hospital for an examination and it revealed extensive beatings, bruises, and she'd clearly been the victim of systematic abuse. She ended up being in the hospital for an entire week. Oh my God. I mean, this is real hardcore being beat with a bat abuse. During that week, she ended up confiding in a DYFS social worker about the abuse that she endured at the hands of Ricky. So she admitted it was Ricky. However, again, she didn't mention Billy Joel and she didn't mention Marie. Two DYFS social workers followed up by interviewing Marie. Marie in what was described as a very calm and credible manner, denied everything. She claimed to have no clue where Ricky was and suggested that maybe Harriet was just fantasizing the whole thing. She was fantasizing bruises. Well, that was the dilemma that the caseworkers found themselves in. Because Marie seemed so convincing, but they knew Harriet was clearly the victim of prolonged abuse. Not really knowing what to do, they ended up recommending that Harriet not be returned to the custody of Marie, and also that Marie not face any charges. Mm. So now the Moore household is comprised of only Marie, her daughter Tammy, 50-year-old roommate Mary, and Ricky. 12-year-old Teresa lived down the road with her grandma, continued to come over every day and be subjected to the abuse. Being that Marie was her godmother and a friend of her deceased mother, Teresa trusted Marie and knew that Marie was looking out for her best interests. But this trust would end up leading to the ultimate betrayal. And it's so 
so sad. After Harriet escaped, Marie told the group that Billy Joel's henchman found her and ran her over with a car. Oh my God. Killing her. This served to increase Ricky and Teresa's fear of him. He could clearly hurt anyone at any time. But it wasn't just the adolescents who were scared to death of Billy Joel. Roommate Mary was also convinced of his existence. And unfortunately for her, she started falling on Billy Joel's bad side, which is no place where you want to be. One evening prior to Harriet's escape, Mary had attempted to intervene while Ricky was really giving Harriet a bad beating. And that really pissed Billy Joel off. Billy, through the embodiment of Marie, decided that Mary should have a list of rules and chores to do. And if they weren't followed to his liking, she needed to be punished too. She was now going to be treated as a child. And as I said, at this point, nothing made Billy Joel happy. His hunger for pain and suffering was insatiable. And the violence in the Moore household just continues to escalate and escalate. But before I tell you more, we're going to take a quick break. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So we're back and... Mary is now a victim of the violence and the wrath of, quote-unquote, Billy Joel. Mary and Teresa were frequently forced to strip naked. Ricky would place one end of a thumb cuff to each female. And then, at the orders of Billy Joel, he would attach the other end of the cuff to one of their big toes. They would then be forced to lay on their stomachs on the floor like that for an hour. That had to be extremely uncomfortable. And humiliating. Yes. Then, when that punishment was deemed not enough to teach the two a lesson, they were held in that position naked and kicked and beat with baseball bat and burned with cigarettes. That's awful. These poor girls. At some point, Marie moved the household down the street to a second-floor apartment in a home that was owned by her elderly friend named Ferdinando Ragusa. And he's a bad guy. He's an old perv. Oh, great. Each day, 
12-year-old Teresa's tortured soul continued to go to the Moore household as instructed, and Marie began pimping her out. Oh, no. To her old, perverted landlord. In exchange for money, Teresa was forced to perform oral sex on Ferdinando. In addition, more various sexually deviant forms of torture were implemented on Mary and Teresa at the instruction of Marie by the orders of Billy Joel. Billy Joel told Ricky that he needed to really try harder to hurt the girls because he was in a competition against other children who were administering punishments in similar households. A competition. There was now a competition between other households. Where this was happening? Yes. In January of 1982, Ricky was sitting at the table talking with the embodiment of Billy Joel when Billy started to ask him some personal questions and also confide in him about Marie. Billy Joel told Ricky that Marie had fallen in love with him and that she also wanted to start having sexual intercourse with him. Oh my God. He asked Ricky what Ricky wanted. Did Ricky want to be her son or did he want to be Marie's lover? Ricky, who'd been calling Marie Ma, told Billy that he thought of Marie as a mother figure, not a lover. Billy warned the boy to think twice about hurting Marie's feelings because the last two men that did got their asses beat by Billy Joel's henchmen. Even though he's her ex-husband. He doesn't want to see her hurt. That's when 35-year-old Marie and 14-year-old Ricky became lovers. Unfucking believable This is so gross. I know, and he was calling her ma. I know, I mean, that's, that's just, just fucking perverted. More time went by, and the torture of Mary and Teresa continued until May 31st, 1982, when Mary escaped the Moore household. Marie controlled Mary, obviously, by this point. She would drive Mary to the woman's part-time job, and then she would pick her up. But one day, Mary lied to her and said, I need a ride to work. She didn't really work that day. She actually just went in to use their phone. And she ended up calling her siblings and begging them to come pick her up. They did, and they drove her directly to the Toms River Police Department. There, a detective named Tom Kerwin, he ended up speaking with Mary for three hours, where she described the beatings and the sexual abuse she received at the hands of Ricky. I don't know what Mary's sexual abuse was. It really didn't go into detail. I just know that she was the victim of extreme, sexually deviant violence. Mary never mentioned Billy Joel in the mix. She was very distraught and described as emotionally destroyed. Her physical condition was described as, quote, very, very poor, and she ended up being admitted into the hospital for treatment. Mary begged the detective to intervene and save Teresa, who was too helpless to save herself. A week later, oh no, a DYFS social worker named Miss Kathy Della Pesca interviewed Teresa and Tammy at their school. Both girls denied there was any abuse occurring at the Moore household, 
but they did admit that they had recently seen runaway Ricky there. And by this time, Ricky had been missing for seven months. Social worker Della Pesca met with Marie, who denied ever seeing any violence in her house. No, 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 never. No. no. But she did admit that Ricky had stopped there briefly about three weeks earlier. And she said if she sees him again, she'll let her know. The social worker's instincts told her something was off and someone was lying. Escorted by a police officer, Della Pesca made a surprise visit to the Moore household. When they did, Teresa was caught trying to escape out the back door and ordered back inside. Marie greeted them at the door, said, come on in, and was very cooperative. But social worker Della Pesca, she took Teresa into a separate room and made her privately undress. She wanted to see if there were any bruises or markings on her body. And of course, there were. There were cigarette burns, scrapes, bruises, you name it. Teresa tried to lie and say that she had a really bad fall at school. And Marie, hearing this, said, oh, you know, you did. Oh, you should have told me. And played this very comforting motherly role. Not really knowing what to do. Teresa was taken by the social worker to her grandma's house, and a doctor's appointment was made for her two days later. She was personally escorted by the social worker to see a doctor who described her injuries as the result of systematic and severe abuse. So why wasn't Marie arrested, right? Right. No, why is she not arrested? The reason is simple. She didn't administer the torture and beatings. That was done by Ricky on the orders of Billy Joel. And none of the victims felt Marie was responsible. They all believed Marie didn't want to do it. It was Billy Joel making it all happen. And they didn't want to see Marie get in trouble. So well, they, they need to take down Billy Joel. <laughs> don't say that about Billy. Right? Somebody needs to go talk to him. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. <laughs> And then Billy Joel was interviewed. Yeah, and he was, he was like, what the fuck? Again, Billy Joel's name wasn't even mentioned, which I find kind of interesting. The only thing I could think of is that they think by saying Billy Joel, it'll link back to Marie. Teresa's grandmother, she called Marie on September 22nd in 1982, expressing her fear that Teresa might be taken into the custody of DYFS. And with that, Teresa Fury's fate was sealed. Teresa came over to Marie's house that day, and she never left. A few days later, Marie called Teresa's grandma and said, you know, hey, where's Teresa? And her grandma's like, I thought she was with you. And she said, no, she must have ran away. In truth, Teresa was pulled from school and kept cuffed by her thumbs to a high hook on the kitchen wall. They hung her there all day from morning till night. When it was bedtime, Ricky escorted Teresa to the bathroom where she was cuffed to the bathtub and ended up sleeping with her arm attached to the bathtub and her body on the floor of the bathroom. Ricky, on orders from Billy Joel, 
frequently raped and sodomized <sighs> Teresa no. while Marie watched. Oh, no. And Marie continued to pimp Teresa out to the perv landlord. But it gets so much worse. Marie and Ricky began to deny Teresa the most essential human comforts. She was no longer given food, and she was no longer allowed to use the bathroom. They forced her to urinate and defecate in a kitchen pan. Oh, my God. And what's interesting is you have to remember that Tammy, who's maybe 13 by now, is in this house, too. Right. And Teresa was her friend. Eventually, they took away the pan. They stripped Teresa of her clothes and her dignity, and they forced her to wear pampered diapers instead. Oh, my God. Teresa's body was breaking down, and her spirit was destroyed. She was treated as if she was less than human by a woman she called Ma. Betrayal just gets me so pissed off. That's why I wanted her story to be heard. Eventually, one evening, while still coughed, Teresa was found unconscious in the kitchen. Marie uncoughed her, and after a little while, Teresa came to. She was moved to the bathroom where she was coughed to the bathtub for the night. The next morning, Marie asked Ricky to remove Teresa from the bathroom so that Tammy could get ready for school. Oh my God. Ricky did this every morning. This had become a routine, and this had been going on for over a month. He would release Teresa from the tub, permit her to walk down to the kitchen where he would recuff her. Following his customary procedure, Ricky uncuffed Teresa. But this time, the child, who'd been laying face down on the floor, didn't get up. Ricky tried to lift her up by her shoulders, bringing her to her knees. When he let go of her, he thought she would be able to hold herself up, but instead Teresa fell. She ended up striking her head on the bathtub, and then from the bathtub, her head bounced onto the floor. He dragged her into the hallway and decided to check to see if she was still breathing. He could hear faint moans coming from her, but then those moans stopped. For some reason, and I'm not sure if he was trying to perform CPR or what, but he pushed down on her stomach, producing a noise that, quote, sounded like someone going to the bathroom. I'm assuming air was coming out mm-hmm. of her, I'm guessing. Ricky turned to Marie and said, Teresa's dead. After seeing Tammy off to school, <laughs> poor Tammy. Because Tammy, by the way, never participated in any of the abuse. Although she didn't receive any abuse, being in that house is abuse enough. Marie ordered Ricky to place Teresa's body in the bathroom crawl space while she went to the store to purchase eight rolls of duct tape, large garbage bags, a garment bag, and some lime. Oh, no. A garbage bag was placed over Teresa's head, and then another one was put over her legs. She was then wrapped in eight rolls of duct tape and then placed inside the garment bag. Ricky put Teresa's bagged and taped body in the part of the attic where the slanted roof met the third floor ceiling, and then he covered it with insulation. 
When Tammy came home from school that day, Marie told her that Teresa died, which Tammy had suspected, and that her body had been sent to Billy Joel in New York City. What? She had to tell her where Teresa went. And remember, this was all Billy Joel was wanting. Right. Seven months later, in May of 1983, Marie moved the household again and took Teresa's body with her. Oh, no. A hole was made in one of the bedroom walls, and Teresa was placed in the crawl space there. Then Marie and Ricky, they nailed a piece of wood over the wall and then put wallpaper all over the room to conceal what they had done. The 13-year-old girl's body would remain there for six more months before happenstance intervened and unweed the lies of Marie. In the summer after the murder, Marie, posing as Ricky's mother, who was widowed, brought him to the Haband Clothing Factory and helped him get a job as a maintenance worker there to help supplement her income. She wanted Ricky to get to work. Oh, she doesn't have Mary anymore. She yeah, that's some a money, right? That's a very good point. Marie dropped Ricky off in the morning and she would pick him up when the shift was done. She had complete control over him. She even told his personal manager to make sure that no one else but her ever picked Ricky up. By a strange twist of fate, Ricky's older brother, Philip, who repaired typewriters, he was sent to the Haban factory on a service call. When he was there, he spotted what looked like his brother from afar. He rushed home, he picked up his mom, and he returned to the factory. He asked the front office if that was indeed Ricky, and they said it was, and they paged Ricky to come to the front. When Ricky came out from behind the counter, he saw his family standing there, and he said, quote, oh my God, mom, and then he ran away. Philip chased after him, but he didn't end up catching up with Ricky. Ricky's mother immediately called the police, and they were able to track Ricky based on his employment application. They knew where he lived. When they got to Marie's house, they found Ricky hiding under the sink, and he was immediately arrested and charged with incorrigibility. Marie was ordered to stay away from Ricky, and charges were filed against her in July for having sex with a minor, endangering the child welfare of a minor, Ricky, and interfering with Ricky's custody. Portia remained free on bond. But Marie couldn't stay away from Ricky. Oh, no. Many times she was caught following him, and she would have others deliver him messages that ranged anywhere from I love you to threatening him and threatening to turn him in to the police for murder. She was deathly afraid that Ricky would end up squealing and telling the truth about what happened to Teresa. She was so afraid that she plotted and planned to frame him for it and asked Tammy to go along with what she concocted. On December 17th, Marie called the police to tell them that her daughter Tammy had just confided in her that Ricky had repeatedly raped her and that Tammy had witnessed him murdering Teresa. When Tammy was interviewed by the police, she confirmed all of the allegations and added that she had seen Ricky repeatedly torture 
and murder Teresa with her own eyes. On that same day, Marie, wanting to help the police out, went to her former Madison Avenue home and pointed out different depressions in the backyard where she thought Ricky might have buried Teresa. A public work crew even dug up the yard, but of course, they found no body. Marie then suggested that they search the crawl space of the home, which they did. And that's when they found an empty roll of duct tape and noticed a, quote, strong, foul smell there. But again, they found no body. Police were convinced that Marie knew where Teresa's remains were. I mean, they're not stupid. Marie thinks she's the smartest person in the room, but she's a goddamn dumbass. The following day, Marie's perv landlord called the detectives on Marie's urging and asked if they planned to continue their search of the house. The detective in charge, he came up with this genius idea because he knew Marie wanted them to eventually find this body. He said, you know what? We're going to close the investigation. We don't believe there's a murder. We think Teresa probably just ran away. Within an hour, Marie was at the police station holding a piece of bloodstained insulation, claiming to have discovered it while she was searching for the body in the house. Accompanied by Marie, investigators went to the home and she pointed to an area inside the bedroom wall where she suspected Ricky may have disposed of the body. That's when the mummified remains of 13-year-old Teresa Fury were discovered still wrapped in the duct tape, garbage bags, and inside the garment bag. An autopsy on Teresa Fury revealed that the blow to her head and her face from being dropped and hitting the bathtub and then the floor would have caused her death, but not right away. She may have been alive for four to eight hours after the injury, which means she was still alive when the garbage bags were placed over her and the duct tape was wrapped around her and may have been alive when she was put in the garment bag. There was not enough soft tissue remaining to determine whether she had suffocated to death, so the medical examiner could only say that was a possibility. Both Ricky and Marie were arrested. Marie was interviewed. She claimed she couldn't remember what happened to her when Billy Joel embodied her. And she desperately wanted to get rid of this personality inside her. But then Marie began to fear that she might go, quote unquote, to the crazy house. And she didn't want that. She admitted that Billy Joel, he was just someone she had made up in her head. So soon after, Billy Joel just kind of left her body for good. I think at first she was trying to say she had multiple personalities. The prosecutor decided not to charge Ricky as an adult and entered a plea agreement instead that he would be charged as a juvenile with a maximum custodial term of three years. Damn. In return, Ricky agreed to testify against Marie, as did Mary, Harriet, Tammy, and Lewis. Marie was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Oh my God. However, this death sentence was later overturned because the medical examiner couldn't determine that Teresa had suffocated to death, which would have meant Marie was involved because she got the duct tape and all of that. The court said that Marie wasn't directly responsible for Teresa's death. Are you kidding me? No. 
Had she suffocated to death, then Marie's death sentence would have been upheld. But in the end, Teresa died at the hands of Ricky. I guess. Yeah, but Ricky was only doing it. Right. On the orders of Billy Joel, which was inside Marie's head. So tell me, Tanya, is that not one of the most fucked up, sad stories you've ever heard? I'm speechless. This is messed up. It's crazy. As far as I know, she's either incarcerated or dead. I couldn't find any information That's more than crazy. what I shared with you. Because if the media had gotten a hold of the story, I'm sure it would have been everywhere. Maybe because it was 1981. Right. I don't know. That's insane. I feel so sorry for poor Teresa. I know. She suffered. That poor child. She just got dealt a bad hand. Well, that was a pisser. Yes. Thanks to Leah. You're welcome. I guess. I want to thank you guys all for taking the time to listen. And if you haven't done so, please hit the follow slash subscribe button. And if you'd like to know more about the episode, you can visit our website, crimesandconsequences.com. And if you'd like to become a member, you can visit patreon.com slash TNT crimes. And if you do become a member, then you get extra episodes, commercial free, early releases, all kinds of great stuff. We go live on Facebook twice a month and tell additional stories. So check it out. We also have an Apple channel. Yes. And you can get the same goodies there. I don't have Apple products, but Tiny says it's very easy to join. Absolutely. You just have to find our podcast and there's a subscribe button that shows up. You can also find us on social media. Yep. At Hardcore True Crime on Facebook and Instagram. And we also have merchandise. Yes. We got some shirts with our logo that say it's a pisser. It says, I hate people. I hate people. And I hate Marie. Yeah. I hate her. There's mugs and all kinds of goodies. So check it out if you're interested. And thank you all again so, so much. We really appreciate you guys. Yes. Until our next episode. Don't kill each other. Bye. Bye. Bye.